Hey, everybody, welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right, today we have another Blister Labs episode for you where we're going to be giving you an update on some more things that we've been doing at Blister Labs. And if somehow you aren't familiar with Blister Labs, then we are going to include some links in the show notes to this episode to get you caught up to speed. But if you are a regular listener to Gear 30, you will remember the Blister Labs conversation that I had with Dr. Jenny Blacklock, where Jenny and I announced this new Blister Labs initiative. And today we have Dr. Sean Humbert, who is an engineering professor at CU Boulder and a professor in the Western Colorado University Partnership Program and just a very key person in this whole Blister Labs initiative. So what I really wanted to do in this conversation was mostly let you all get to know Sean better. So we go pretty deep into Sean's really interesting background and then... Sean gives us an update on some of the ski testing that he's been doing, and I think you're going to be intrigued. Now, Sean and I recorded this conversation this past Tuesday, May 24th, and actually, I need to get this introduction finished because I am leaving right now to go back to Western with our entire Blister team, and we're going to have a big Blister Labs meeting down there, see some further developments in terms of the Blister Labs testing that Sean actually just texted me to say that they've got some new stuff to show us. So we're going to go ahead and get back down to link up with Sean. But for now, I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Sean Humbert. Here we go. Well, Sean, nice to see you. It's been about three hours since I saw you last. We were together earlier today down at Western Colorado University. That was a really cool morning for me, at least. I don't know. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that, I guess. But um, first of all, I guess I'll say welcome back to Blister Headquarters, which is where we are now. Good to have you back here. Yeah, maybe we do kind of dive in and just talk a little bit about this morning at Western. Yeah. No, thanks, Jonathan. Great to be back. Uh, so it was a really fun kickoff. You know, we've got a lot of interns working on the outdoor industry engineering project this summer. Uh, it was great to get everybody together and start synthesizing some ideas and pulling stuff together. Also, you know, we've been putting a lot of time into developing the technology that's going to allow us to be able to do this. And this is the first time I think everybody saw, you know, the sensors we're building that we're deploying in the field. You know, I got to play the movies for you guys, yeah. the real time, you know, GoPro from the boot plus the sensor data. It's just awesome. Uh, you missed actually the best demo of the day, which was, you know, we got the motion capture system up and running and threw a mountain bike wheel in there and just spun it around. And you can see all the data getting pumped out real time. Uh, you can see like, you know, the, the wireframe we're using, like it was just amazing, right? So you have to ask them to give you that demo when you go back down. Okay. Well, and we're, we've got a bunch of the blister crew rolling into town tomorrow and we're going to be back down at Western on Friday. Yeah, no, I'm excited just to, you know, again, I, I, 
Yeah, these thoughts have been rolling around in my head for the past year as we've or actually more like six months as we've been building this up. And I finally had a chance to put all those thoughts down in slides. And so I'd love to sit down with you and your entire team here at Blister and really just kind of lay out what the perspective and what the vision is, right? And kind of get everybody on board. Okay. We really just jumped right into it. Uh, we should <laughs> probably now back up a little bit. This is not the Blister audience's first uh, exposure to you, though. You were part of our Blister Labs panel session that we did at this past Blister Summit. But nevertheless, for you know the one, the one idiot who's yet to see that panel session, who has not taken the time to watch that, let's dive a bit more into your own background because it's a really interesting one. And so why don't we kind of start with like the outdoor side of things? And um, yeah, so like, let's go with where did you grow up? Yeah, so uh, I had the fortune of growing up in Lake Tahoe, and uh, so this was like late '70s, early '80s. You know, so I I think after eighth grade, I moved down to the Bay Area to go to high school. But uh, you know, my parents threw me on skis when I was two years old. I think I was two and a half. I vividly remember that first lesson. Actually, I had this little pair of green skis. <laughs> Uh, you know, instructor would just pick us up and like put us on this little hill and push us down. Right. Um, I thought it was really cool even back then. And then, um, you know, back in the early eighties, Tahoe had tons of snow, like not like it does now. It's very, it's so variable. But, uh, I, I remember, you know, we getting like 10, 15 foot snowstorms coming in and, you know, we'd have to dig out from our front door to the, the main street. And, you know, we'd be sitting for two weeks, like in our house, not going to school and stuff. But the snow was great. And, you know, with, along with that, uh, the snow, the school would allow us to, you know, jump on the bus at maybe 1130. So I'd go ski, you know, probably I'd be on skis 100 days a year when I was a kid. Mm. And I just loved it. It was so wonderful to be outdoors. Tahoe's visually very amazing yeah. too, right? The little ski area I'd skied at was Homewood. Huh. Um, and then Tahoe Ski Bowl, which is right next, they eventually combined. But I just had so many wonderful days growing up as a kid, uh, you know, I'd jump on the bus, you know, we'd just go skiing. And then my mom worked at the ski area and she ran the daycare center. So I'd be there till like seven. And even so when I was in like sixth, seventh grade, you know, I'd go get my runs in. Then I'd just go down to the bar and there'd be like a live band playing. I'm sitting there doing my homework, like, you know. So I've been a like a ski person, like, you know, an opera ski, pre like, yeah. you know, from, from day one, you know. <laughs> you were you were opera skiing in elementary school. Yeah, that's great. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, other outdoor activities, what else are you into? So, you know, I think I just love being up in alpine environments, high altitude environments. And, uh, you know, one thing I picked up recently, I did a bit when I was a kid, but didn't pick it back up until my wife suggested it a couple of years ago is dirt biking. And with that, you know, you can get pretty deep and pretty high up, especially here in Crested Butte, where when I was out here last fall, it was just amazing. I mean, some of the single track here, Cement Creek, like all this stuff, you can get up to just these gorgeous places that you can't really do in a mountain bike unless you, you know, drive most of the way and then hop on the, you know, so you can just get, you know, really far and deep into nature and it's just so beautiful, right? So I like anything that takes me deep and far into those places. Uh, so dirt biking's great. Mountain biking's absolutely wonderful too. Uh, really good. For me, it's more of a cardio thing. Um, I do a little more cross country than I do downhill. Hmm. Um, so my wife and I really love that. 
But uh, yeah, and then camping, anything camping or, you know, hiking, exploring, any of that stuff, like I'm in, you know. Hmm. And then I got introduced to backcountry skiing and sort of the, the off-piste and that part of it in grad school. I had a couple of really great buddies at Caltech hmm. um, that were like really good, like, you know, not just uh, mountaineers, but also like really good skiers. And so, you know, we started, the, you know, we, we had the, the terrible equipment. We'd have our normal downhill skis, you know, we'd throw in like the, the big heavy, like little adapters so you could actually like you know lift your heel yeah. so you know it was awful at first and pretty heavy getting up the slopes but i really love those days too very different than a resort day right like a good backcountry day is you know really good exercise you're out in nature just completely you know disconnected from people and towns and everything and you get just this amazing run at the end of the day right or maybe you do a couple loops or something but so my ultimate ski weekend is like one of those days and then one or two resort days to like you know get all the runs in and stuff but yeah Pretty good outdoor credentials there. Yeah, it's pretty good. Let's talk about the engineering side of things. And I actually don't know the answer to this question. When did you start getting that sort of engineering bug? You know, I've always had it. Um, I think the first, well, okay, so uh, there's two major reasons, I think. Um, first one is my grandfather. He was just, he was an engineer. Uh, just an amazing person. One of the first rocket engineers in the country. Is that right? Yeah, so he was the project engineer on the power plant for the Bell X-1, which is the orange-looking bullet that Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier in. And so he, he was working on that early 40s, right? And, um, huh. you know, and I, so, you know, I always knew he was involved in the industry. And then he also was the chief engineer uh, for the, the propulsion for the Viking launch vehicle. That was one of our first steps toward going to the moon was building that vehicle. And, uh, you know, and he was just a larger than life person. Not only was he an amazing engineer and got to work on some of these like really revolutionary technology items. He was just an awesome guy. Like, and I'll wrap it up in one story. Um, so he had a biplane, he had a steerman, right? He was, I think he was in his late twenties and he and his buddy were flying up the East coast and they were actually going by ocean city beach. And he kind of flew low and this group of, you know, cute girls waved him down. And so he circled around and his buddy landed on the beach in Ocean City, met my grandma. They got engaged like a month later, right? <laughs> Nowadays, you can't land plans on beaches or anything, <laughs> yeah. right? But yeah, he's just a larger than life person. Like, you know, he walked in a room and like everybody lit up. He had a good dry sense of humor. And he was just an all around, just amazing person, right? Like not just an engineer. So I think that's what first attracted me to it. But... I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Real Genius with Val Kilmer. Yeah. Uh, it came out in like 84. I think it's his best work, hands down. <laughs> but um, it was just such an awesome movie. Like, I just connected with that whole thing. Um, just being like, you know, that grad student, like working like, you know, 100 hours a week on something you're just super fired up about and like super challenging. Um, somehow I ended up being like the bad professor that gets the DOD funding that they're kind of rallying against that movie, <laughs> yeah. right? But, uh, and so the, the, you know, the quote university they were at there was Pacific Tech. So Caltech wouldn't let them use the name, right? So I wanted to go to Caltech and get a PhD. That's because the, of real genius. Because of real genius, right? Absolutely. So <laughs> like that, that, that movie, like I probably watched that movie a hundred times when I was a kid. This, this conversation is off to an amazing start. I, I thought I knew a lot about you. I have not heard that anecdote. Yeah. So, But even more, like, uh, so when I, I actually met my wife in high school. She was one of the most amazing people I've ever encountered in my life. But um, we didn't get married till much later when we reconnected. And, uh, you know, I knew she was the one. We are kind of chatting on our first kind of reacquaintance date. And, uh, you know, she mentioned how she loved Real Genius and all her sisters used to watch uh, it all. I'm like, oh, man, you, you're, that's you're, the you're, one. you're the one. That's it. <laughs> 
<laughs> this is two amazing sort of courtship stories. You just said your grandfather's arguably the greatest of all time, right? <laughs> like, see, scope somebody on the beach, right? Lands, lands the plane. <laughs> Hi, yeah. We should probably get married. And yeah. then the way that you know, real genius connected, yeah, connected you. So uh, wow, yeah. yeah. No, like it's, he always again, he always did things big and well, right? And that that's where that is how I've kind of strived to to, to do things in my life too. Okay, high school. You're not just like the ski moron. You're actually like, I, I say this, I always still confess this because I feel bad. I, I wasn't quite plugged in yet uh, in the high school years per se. Were you already kind of like full-blown skier, passionate about that? And also like going hard on the school stuff and paying attention in the science classes? Yeah, and- no, absolutely. I, I mean, so when I was in Tahoe, the reason I moved to the Bay Area is because I basically took all of the math that the junior high and the high school were kind of in the same building. I took all the math that was basically available at the high school, right? So I took, you know, kind of up through like uh, algebra two or something. And um, so there was nothing left for me <laughs> in like Tahoe at the point. Now, I mean, they, they've really improved things, you know, and, and, you know, like all the schools in Tahoe are like pretty good now, right? But early, you know, early mid eighties, it was, you know, <laughs> so I, I've always pushed hard on that. And I've always just gotten a lot of, um, just really, you know, solidified my life. Like I really, really enjoy all the math and all the physics. Like it's beautiful to me. Like I absolutely love it. But I also, again, I've got a, a personality where I, I love being outdoors and I love athletic things, right? Always played sports, always was out there, right? And so usually you find one or the other, like you said, right. right? And I think, you know, we'll get to this later, but that's exactly why I'm so excited about this quantitative kind of analysis project, right? So, you know, we, we need to bring the math in the right way and, you know, kind of look at all the stuff from a different perspective, right? But and we'll, we'll talk a lot about this later though. We will. It's also now, this extra context is now helping me understand my very first time <laughs> ever, ever meeting you, which was, which was pretty great. It was a good moment for me. And uh, yeah, so anyway, okay. You're the real genius of, you know, Tahoe and take all the math courses and then um, walk through the next steps. Because of Real Genius, you decide you're going to go to Caltech Yep. and you don't have any wavering in terms of you're still like, I'm, but like you were talking about math. When did engineering even become, I mean, I guess from your granddad, you could ask him questions. Um, But so you got into the math stuff, but you were always like, from high school, like this yeah. will go into an engineering yeah, career. Yeah, absolutely. For me. Like I, I knew that's um, what I loved, and I also knew that I th- I would be a good educator as well, mm. right? Like I, you know, and being a professor, you get to do both. You get to teach, but you also get to you know push the frontiers of knowledge and like create things that have never been thought about before. I I just knew that would be a really good career for me, right? Like it took a couple steps to get there. But yeah, even in high school, um, I was just super focused on all that stuff. You know, I think everybody has one year where they just kind of unplug. And I think that was my junior year where I just, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how to get to college and all that stuff and who's going to pay for it and all that. And that's a little stressful for somebody. You know, I've always been super independent. Like, you know, I moved out basically when I was 12 years old and been paying for myself ever since. Been employed. Yeah. What? Yeah, well, I moved, you know, in with my grandparents uh, for high school. I missed that part. Oh, yeah, yeah. I missed that part. So, you actually, that's when you went to the Bay Area. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. 
Did you say that? Am I uh, just slow today? No, no, no. I, I didn't okay. say that. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I moved in with my grandparents, right? Again, my grandpa. Gotcha. He was the, yeah. you know, the engineer. So, um, you know, in seventh grade or eighth grade there, like, you know, we went out and we bought like a, like a five megabyte full height hard drive and a motherboard and, you know, the disk drive, like, and we built my first computer, right? Like he showed me how to do it. Wow. Right. And so like, I've always been very interested in this stuff forever. But yeah, I think, and then when I went to college, uh, I originally was even thinking, because I, I have a really good creative side as well. Like, and, and my mom's side of the family is super creative, right? Like, and I've, you know, if I was going to do something other than like engineering, it would probably be like, you know, music. And so I've always been very interested in that stuff as well. But yeah, so I started off wanting to do architecture. And I, th- you know, I, I thought, it, you know, there's a little bit of good enough technical stuff there, but it's also creative. But I found, you know, I was in studio first year and kind of doing all that stuff. And there just wasn't enough math, right? And there wasn't enough physics. But I was taking calc and other things at the same time, right? I, I took physics even though I didn't have to in that program, right? And at that point, I was just like, yeah, I got to do engineering, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, architecture is cool, but it yeah. doesn't have all the math. Yeah. It doesn't have all the physics. Exactly. I need to go yeah. where I can do all the math Absolutely. and all the physics. I got you. Yeah. So I switched to mechanical engineering at that point. And, um, you know, I, I undergraded, uh, undergrad from UC Davis, um, which is a great place. It was, uh, you know, hour and a half, two hours from Tahoe. <laughs> so I got to get some skiing in while I was there, you know, when I could. Huh. But yeah. And then UC Davis and I guess I don't know when exactly. When did you watch Real Genius? When I was a kid. Okay. Uh, like so, age seven to like 12 nonstop. <laughs> so was your grandfather trying to direct you to any other schools? Were you even like, hey, I want to continue this, you know, do graduate work. Where do you think I should go? Yeah. So that's one thing. Too. I've always been a super independent person. Like I said, at age 12, I, you know, I was a year ahead of everybody anyway. Right. So I was a year <laughs> younger. Right. So I went to high school. And I've always, you know, I had to get a, immediately had to get a job, right? And so I've been working since I, like, well, actually even in Tahoe, I, I had a job. I, I worked at the, there's a little subway place across from Squaw Valley. And my mom worked there sometimes. And so they let me come in and like restock the shelves for like two bucks an hour, like under the table, right? <laughs> so I've had a job forever, right? And I've had to, but I had, and then high school, I had to pay for myself, right? And then I put myself entirely through school as well, right? And I knew, um, engineering, you know, we've got a great system where, you know, there's a lot of funding that comes in through the professors. And so most graduate students get, you know, like I do in my lab with all my students, they get fully funded. So I pay their tuition and then I pay them a stipend on top of that to live. So not only do you get paid to go to school, you get your school paid for as well. So it's a really good deal. And I knew that was the only way I was going to go for in school is to have, you know, a really good position and so when I went to Davis, I knew I needed to just knock it out of the park, right? And so while everybody else was going out and maybe skiing two or three days a week and like, you know, going out on Thursdays, like I would have to pick one night a week, if that, and hang out with everybody. And then I was just working my tail off hmm. otherwise, right? But I knew if I did that at Davis, I'd be able to get into Caltech, right? And only, again, only the top of the top go to Caltech, right? And so I knew I needed to do that. But I also found so many amazing professors when I was there. So I found a math professor that did feedback control over um, at Davis. I just went and knocked on his door one day and introduced myself and said, I'll work for free. I just want to get involved in the, the research you do. I think it's amazing. And I'd already kind of read up on stuff. And so, you know, he had me take some graduate classes and that's why I took five years to graduate. Like I was, you know, getting a little bit 
pretty deep into the research and everything. And he was such an amazing mentor. His name is Art Krenner. He's like one of the, the most famous controls people like, you know, in the field. And he actually had connections to Caltech. I didn't know that at the time. But um, so, and I actually, when I was an undergrad, I was already working on a project with Art who was connected to the advisor I eventually worked for at Caltech, which is awesome. Right. So, you know, I made my way through there and just worked my tail off to get there. Huh. So you get to Caltech. Are you already starting to have pretty well-defined ideas about what you want to be working on? Or were you just still taking courses and learning? Like, when did that stuff start to crystallize, you know, the next next after? Yeah, and that's a great question because, you know, I, I'm dealing with this with all my grad students right now. Like, I've got a lot that have been there for like two years and they're looking for that, you know, what do you love? You know, like, what do you want to do? Like, what, you know, when you're out of here, you know, what do you want to say about your work? You know, so, I mean, it took me a little bit to kind of get on that track. I think I started with one or two different projects and I didn't find anything that I was loving. And so I actually went to my advisor and I said, hey, I'd like to take a year off and just go work in industry. Hmm. Um, that ended up turning into two years. So I left um, with my master's from Caltech and then went to Pratt & Whitney Space Propulsion. And so there I you know, got to design real cool stuff um, you know, as the project engineer on all the avionics for the upper stage engine for the Delta IV launch vehicle. So I got to do you know, like the thrust vector control system. So there's two electromechanical actuators that tilt the nozzle to do all the GNC stuff. Um, and then uh, the upper stage engine, the bigger the nozzle, the higher you can get into orbit. And so, you know, it's like a camp cup. And so you deploy this nozzle. So I was the project engineer on that entire system, like all the controls to deploy the nozzle. And more importantly, all the structures to hold it in place. So when you launch a, a satellite into orbit, you know, the first, you know, as you're going through the atmosphere, that's where all the crazy stuff happens. It's called the boost phase. So you've got all the aerodynamic loads on the vehicle. You've got all the vibration from the engine just going like bat out of hell, you know? And uh, so just designing all that stuff and learning how to do that was really awesome. And, you know, we can connect to this later, but, uh, you know, all the structural dynamics for doing that, um, you know, that's what we're bringing to the ski project here. That's what we're bringing to our analysis mm -hmm. in the skis. Because the, the, you know, that particular material for that nozzle, it needs to be really good thermally because it's got to, you know, have all these like molecules, these, you know, high energy molecules bouncing off it to produce all the thrust. Um, but the modulus of that, um, which how it responds to forces, is more like wood, right? So you've got to have this really fragile very thermally good piece of material withstand all those loads as you're kind of going up, right? So all the the techniques and all the tools and all the, the structural analysis we did um, to analyze those systems is exactly what we're bringing to bear um, on, you know, because a ski is a very simple version of that, right? Like it's just a structure that's kind of bouncing on snow, right? So we're bringing to bear all of that, uh, all those techniques and all of that knowledge uh, to this project. <laughs> Full circle. <laughs> yeah. Because you were, you were working on the stuff that you've just been describing. This is just after you took your master's from yep. Caltech. So how old are you? Uh, like early 20s, right? Like, uh, but I'll tell you what, in industry, like if you show initiative and work hard, like you just get promoted like crazy, right? And so like the... You know, the CEO for the the space part called me in at some point. He's like, Sean, we want you to, to eventually be chief engineer of space for Pratt. Uh, we want you to spend a year in manufacturing and a year in quality just to kind of get well-rounded, and then we'll do this. And I, I probably would have been the youngest chief engineer for Pratt. But I, 
you know, I, as much as I loved the work and I loved understanding and, and developing a depth of knowledge to know what it takes to build like an aerospace qualified piece of hardware and launch it, knowing that you've got like an $80 million satellite yeah. sitting up there, like, and if anything fails, yeah. like, you know, big time, you know. <laughs> don't, um, don't waste our yeah, $80 million, dollars, exactly, Sean. Yeah. But, you know, I, I couldn't be glued to a desk for, you know, eight hours a day. Like, I just wasn't going to, like, I wasn't going to be happy. That was not my path, right? And so that's, that's when I went back to Caltech and finished out my PhD, knowing that academia was probably where I wanted to be, right? Because, you know, academia is amazing. Like, being a professor is such a wonderful, it's hard, very hard to get job, right? But, um, you know, it's like running your own little business. You know, you go out, you know, one day you're the marketing person and you're, you know, business development. You're getting grants to support the students and the work in your lab. Uh, the next day, you know, you're the technical lead and you're meeting with all your graduate students and, and you know, kind of going through their technical work and checking things, you know. You know so you get to wear all the different hats. And also you have a ton of flexibility. You know, we like to say you get to work any 80 hours of the week that you want, right? Um, I mean, I don't mind putting in hard work and long hours as long as I'm loving what I'm doing. Yeah. And that's exactly what being a professor is all about, right? You just love what you do. You know, you love the incredibly talented students and the, all the work that they're doing. And uh, yeah, no, I just, I knew that was my career path. And as I mentioned before, even when I was young, I knew, I think I'd be, I was going to be a good educator and a good lecturer. And I knew I'd be able to, to be creative with the ideas, right? And so this is just a blend of all of that. And so when I, and so anyway, the long answer to a very short question you asked about five minutes ago, um, that's how I kind of, did, you know, found my path in grad school. Like I, I knew I wanted to go into academics, but I needed to spend two years in industry to realize that. Yeah. So from Caltech, talk a little bit about your career path from there. Yeah. So um, just kind of coming out of Caltech, again, I was, I was thinking about different ideas and thinking about uh, things to do my dissertation on. This really cool professor moved down from Berkeley named Michael Dickinson, and he he's a biologist. And he studies flies. And so... Um, so, you know, and he came over to my advisor and he's like, hey, I need some controls people so we can start kind of pulling apart some of the, the feedback loops in these animals and starting to understand a little bit better. And I'm like, well, that sounds like a great idea. Insects have had, you know, 200 to 400 million years of evolutionary experience to develop amazing, you know, sort of ways to do stuff. So I was really excited about that. And so that's where I kicked off my academic career is in, you know, bio-inspired engineering. And so my PhD, I looked at, uh, you know, modeling all of the neural connections in the main part of insect visual systems. Like flies are really good at avoiding fly swatters, right? Yep. So I wrote down all the math based off, uh, you know, all the neural connections and what the biologists knew at the time um, and showed that, you know, you can actually do this and do it really well. And so we take those cool, fun principles from like fruit flies and we transition those to robotic systems. So that's kind of where I started to build my lab is doing that stuff. So again, getting into robotics and, and starting to, to pull all that together. A lot of fun. Um, and then that naturally led to like autonomy. And that's kind of what my lab really focuses on right now at Boulder is, you know, autonomous systems. And, you know, we can go into as little or as much depth as you want about this. But so we just had, so DARPA just had the, uh, the Subterranean Challenge final event this past September. Yeah. So every five years they do like, you know, put out this amazing, like, you know, sort of, super blue sky, like amazing hard challenge. You know, uh, you know, the first one was just, you know, driving a car autonomously on a dirt road, right? Then that went to like the urban challenge where you have to now drive in traffic autonomously, right? 
And so the subterranean challenge, the idea is that, uh, you know, you may have humans that are stuck and there's rubble and there's maybe some collapsed, you know, tunnels or something. And you want to send a team of robots in to build a map and, and understand this, the local situation there and identify humans and pump all that out to like an iPad. All right. So these robots, you know, don't have GPS. Uh, communications is hard because you can't pump RF through rock or anything. So you got to figure out how to drop some breadcrumbs and kind of maintain a comms network. Um, it's dark, it's muddy, it's wet, it's slippery. Like it's, there's a lot of specularity. So vision doesn't work very well. So there's all sorts of cool challenges with that. And so I was one of the, the six or seven funded teams from DARPA. So we each got uh, four and a half million bucks over three years to develop a system of autonomous robots that could go in and interrogate these subterranean environments. Um, and again, we did uh, for Boulder, you know, nobody puts Boulder on the, the the map for robotics really, right? But the Carnegie Mellons, you know, the the JPLs, the Caltechs, the MITs, right? So these are the competition. Uh, so we just had this thing, uh, you know, this at the end of last year here. And uh, we placed third, which was amazing, one and a half million bucks. But we, and more importantly, we beat Carnegie Mellon. <laughs> uh, and then we, they came in fourth. And then we beat the Caltech MIT JPL team, alma mater, right? Uh, so we, they came in fifth. Right. And they had, you know, we had a team of about 15 really talented and really amazing graduate students and then a handful of faculty. These other teams had like, you know, NRC postdoc support and stuff. So they, they had like 50 to 60 people, right? Like Carnegie Mellon has systems engineers that, you know, work on staff there that support these things, right? So for us to, to even be in the conversation um, with these folks is just amazing for Colorado and it was amazing for Boulder. So, yeah. yeah. That's really cool. What does DARPA stand for? Uh, Defense Advanced Projects uh, Research Agency. Okay. <laughs> Just keeping you honest. Yeah. I was like, I think he knows, yeah. but it's going to be funny <laughs> if he doesn't. Anyway. Cool. Wow. Okay. So to recap, we've gone from mostly just wanting to be outside, but also wanting all the math and all the physics to then working on like rocket ships, but then being really excited about flies, which then led to robotics, which then led to beating your alma mater on a robotics DARPA competition. How'd I do? <laughs> pretty good. That's I, pretty good. I would say it's the Super Bowl of autonomous robotics. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like that. That's yeah. good. It's good. So you could have gone into branding too. <laughs> right. Another question, because I don't know the answer. When did you first hear about this? Was it from Jenny? Dr. Yeah, Jenny so, Blacklock? Yeah, this is, this, and this is a really good story too, Jonathan. Um, so, you know, from Boulder, like I was on the executive committee. So, you know, we, we discuss what we're doing as a department and, you know, we're, we're building these satellite programs at the state universities here in Colorado so that the folks could stay at the, at that place for all four years, get a CU engineering degree and not have to, you know, and so again, it's, it's really good from an outreach perspective to, you know, sort of underrepresented parts in the state. Right. So all, all wonderful. Um, so they said, Hey, we're, we're building a program at Western in Gunnison now. And, you know, we're going to start to get people through, but we haven't hired enough uh, instructors or faculty to support the education mission there yet. Because what happens is the, the students are Western students for the first two years, and then they uh, transition to be CU students, even though they're still on the Gunnison campus. And so CU has been hiring a faculty to support the, sec or the, the third and the fourth year. Um, and they just didn't have enough faculty to teach. So like, hey, we'll give you a little stipend if you want to go down 
to Gunnison and teach for, you know, fall semester or something, I, I just, I threw my hand up, right? <laughs> like, I think a lot of my colleagues have younger kids. And so it'd be very difficult to kind of take them out of school for six months. But, you know, my wife and I, you know, our son's like 21 and, you know, out, you know, out of the nest now, right? So I just threw my hand. I'm like, yes, count me in, right? I'll teach whatever you want me to teach, right? <laughs> and so that actually is where I, uh, this, that's where this started. And then, um, you know, came down thinking I'd just come down here for a semester and have a great opportunity. Because so I visited Crested Butte when I was a kid. Uh, my uncle went to Western and, uh, you know, he lived in Crested Butte South for a long time. So my dad took my brother and sister and I on a nice trip of the Western states. And we stopped in Crested Butte for like two weeks. And I just loved it. Like, it was a beautiful place. I'm like, oh, got to go out there, right? <laughs> And uh, so it started just being, hey, it's going to be a fall semester kind of a thing. You'll teach a class, you know, and then again, help stand up the program here, right? Because we're really, um, you know, we're really interested in doing this for outreach for, for different parts of the state. And then I think uh, the second or like, uh, or like the, the week I got here in the second meeting between Jenny and Greg and I, Jenny's like, you know what, this outdoor engineer outdoor industry engineering stuff is really kicking off like we you know we've been talking to this uh this guy named jonathan ellsworth uh from he's like the the editor for blister magazine i'm like blister magazine <laughs> like i mean and you know we had this conversation but and i think i told you when i first met you um that's where i go to read all my reviews right for all my skis right and i you know so i like in i think in 2015 is when i started reading some blister stuff and started getting into it and so for the past 5 years like that's my go to right hmm. like um like you i i saw how fluffy and ridiculous a lot of these like you know they're basically marketing pieces they're not they're not val, val you know valuation pieces they're they're very fluffy and marketing things um but this is the first you know, set of reviews that I felt, you know, cause you guys spend what, 15 days on each ski to really kind of understand what's going on. And like, you don't publish anything if you, you know, so we don't do two runs, we don't do exactly. two runs yep. and yeah, call it a day. Yeah. yeah. So these are the kind of things that really excited me about this. And so, um, you know, I've always, again, I've been skiing for 45 years yeah. now. Right. And so and all, you know, all different kind of terrain and conditions. And, you know, I, I've gone from different types of skis I like, and, you know, I, I knew what I liked, but I was looking for a way to to kind of verbalize or quanti or qualify that, and the reviews that you guys do help me do that. And it's and you know five years ago I started thinking about I would love to be able to get involved with the ski industry and just bring to bear kind of my wealth of knowledge and my depth of knowledge uh, to some of these problems. Uh, but I didn't have any contacts, you know. And the the blister summit was awesome. We had like that was the first time I really started meeting some of the designers yeah. and. and and that was so cool just to kind of understand how these companies think about their products and what they're putting out there. You know, Rosie has a very different view than K2 on a lot of these things. You know, it was just really cool to see that. But anyways, about five years ago, I really started to think about, well, how, you know, how could I bring the depth of my knowledge and apply it to like the ski, you know, industry? And so... When I heard you, and then, you know, I met you, I think like a week later or yeah. something, right? And just like, I was blown away, man. I was just so excited. <laughs> that was, uh, yeah, that was very flattering. I've told this story before now because it's it still makes me smile. But we met on campus down at Western and Greg Vanderbeek, he introduced us and he's like, Jonathan, this is Sean. And he's just like, for lack of a better term, he's like, Sean's a freaking badass you know, in the world of engineering and, you know, and I'm like, man, it, it's great to meet you. And, uh, <laughs> and you were just, you kind of explained why it was interesting to you having been reading Blister for some years, but that was a pretty funny moment. And 
one, I wanted people to just hear a bit more about your own background. But the other thing that's really important for me, as we will now be talking more about Blister Labs and what we'll be doing for hopefully years and years going forward, for people listening, you know, they can go back and listen to the conversation that I did on Gear 30 with Jenny Blacklock. They're getting a pretty good sense. You've just spelled out pretty well, like where you've come from and your deep passion for the outdoors and your deep passion for thinking hard about engineering and data and the like. And I sure, I mean, this every time we all get together again, like we did this morning, it's so exciting to me. And it's what I'm hoping to do in this conversation is get the rest of the world sort of equally excited and also hopefully pretty impressed with the kind of forces that we're bringing together in this Blister Labs thing. So yeah, so let me let me kind of tell you about where my excitement comes from for this. So I mean, technology since when I started skiing, like long time, like from a, a sensor and data collection perspective, like there is so much out there now. You know, and being, you know, a researcher kind of on the cutting edge and the cusp of a lot of this stuff, especially in robotics, um, you know, we have so many tools at our disposal now that we never had. I mean, even 10 years ago, you know, and like, like, you know, what we saw today, you know, we saw, um, you know, deployable infield distributed sensor systems that we can instrument skis or mountain bikes with and get real-time data. And again, where a lot of the, um, the useful stuff has come on the algorithmic side, you know, like accelerometers and gyros are very noisy. You know, how do you build something useful out of that data? Uh, you know, my graduate students and I, you know, we know how to think about that data. We know how to process it. Um, you know, from a like a robotics perspective, when we put a sensor on something in the field, you know, we need to immediately use that data and feedback or something. And so in this case, you know, we don't need to really like modify the system with any sort of feedback. So we get to just observe the data and then we can take it home and post-process it. And there's just so many uh, like really useful algorithms now to clean up the noise and then make predictions about stuff uh, that we're not measuring directly, such as angles or positions of things. And again, you know, we've been, this actually goes, ties back to the, the insect stuff I was talking about. So um, you know, our robots are really good, but, you know, they don't move like squirrels or they don't fly like birds, right? And if you look at the one major difference between what the squirrels and those birds are doing versus what our robots are doing, it's mechanosensory. Like animals like, you know, like fruit flies, they've got little mechanosensors all over their bodies and their neurons are pooling across all this information and generating signals that allow them to like avoid fly swatters and stuff, Right. And so that's what we're doing with the skis. We're instrumenting them with distributed sensors and we're using some of our intuition and our knowledge about how insects process mechanosensory stuff to build up uh, some of the data that we're generating. So, you know, you can you can thank fruit flies uh, for some of the stuff that we're doing here, right? But again, we're bringing just this very interesting different perspective that I think most folks, you know, haven't been thinking about and certainly haven't been applying to like the ski industry, right? Yeah. So that's just one. And then motion capture is something that really revolutionized how we do robotics. Uh, so I think I was the second lab in the country to actually get a Vicon system, which is one of the first motion capture systems. So John Howe had one at MIT. Um, and then there was uh, somebody at Boeing that actually was the first person to really think about using this. Now, Hollywood uses it all the time, right? Like that's how they, you know, they put markers on, you know, the actors and they kind of swing their lightsabers around yeah. in a green room. 
And then um, they'll play those motions through like, you know, really high fidelity animations. So that's how they make it realistic. So Hollywood's been using it for a long time. Once we were able to bring it into the lab, we were able to get data and uh, quality of data that we never used to be able to have, right? And that's what we're going to be applying to this system too. So, and now these motion capture systems have gone from just being inside a laboratory to being able to be taken outdoors and get in-field measurements as well. So not only do we have uh, distributed sensory systems that we can put on skis and mountain bikes and collect like acceleration and you know angular velocity data, we now can actually get like really, really good position data and then all, everything else that comes with that through processing. And so that's, again, that's the demo you missed today, Jonathan. You know, we got, we threw a, like a mountain bike wheel and, and just spun it around and you can kind of see um, the data that streams out of there and the accuracy, you know, and some of these systems are capturing data at like a thousand hertz, right? So mm. we're going to be getting, you know, the vibration and the, you know, sort of the deform deformation of the, the mountain bike wheel as it goes through a rock garden. Like we're going to be able to get some of this data that nobody's ever even thought of before. And it's really going to help us, you know, provide that quantitative analysis to the, you know, to the qualitative reviews that you guys do. Yeah. And maybe this is when we should, I don't know, back up or slow down for a second and go a little bit more macro because we, we kind of been in the weeds here for a minute. And, you know, this was part of my talk this morning, like to the whole team, you know, if this all sounds pretty fancy and sophisticated and maybe you're getting lost a little bit along the way, like that's okay. I'm still very clear that the end result of all this is we are just trying to continue what has always been the original mission of Blister, which is to put out the most accurate and useful consumer product information to our global outdoor community. And as I said this morning, to our friends, right? Like to our friends. And, you know, this is stuff, you know, marrying this quantitative analysis to the qualitative stuff. We were talking about this this morning. You know, I was like, I've been thinking about this for probably 10 years. I just have been waiting to for the kind of all the stars to align. <laughs> you were like, I've been thinking about this for 25 years, <laughs> you know, which I love, yeah. you know, but that's really what this is about. And, and I said again, like we might be able to spin out some really fancy sounding papers off of this or whatever, but I was really challenging the students today, the faculty today. I want us all to keep in mind, we are looking for, information and end results that help our fellow outdoors folks make better decisions about, should I go this way with respect to gear? What does that do that this other thing doesn't do? Maybe it's okay to save some money here. Maybe the new thing isn't actually an upgrade over the old thing that I really like. And I, I think that you are fully on board with that as our Jenny and Greg and Lauren and the other people we're working with. And that's something that I think is really special about the group we've assembled. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more, Jonathan. You know, getting, you know, the average person that skis seven days a year yeah. into the right equipment so that it makes that experience better. And that's exactly what this should do. And I couldn't agree with you more. You know, there's so many engineers that would just dive in and just do a bunch of analysis and do a bunch of data and again, write the cool paper, yeah. right? But that's not accessible to like the general audience. Yeah. And I've had a lot of experience with this actually because, um, you know, I, I mentioned that I collaborate with the biology community a bit. And, you know, 
the language in those two communities is very different, engineering and biology. And in order for us to effectively collaborate, you know, we have to learn how to talk to each other. And so while biologists haven't gone and they haven't done like differential geometry and done like calculus on manifolds, um, they, they, you know, they have their own language for talking about like uh, afferent and efferent uh, neural signals and things, right? And it's equally complicated, right? Mm -hmm. So I've had a lot of experience trying to explain why the math is useful when we apply it to the biology. And so you've got to be able to relate, you know, the, the higher level math concepts to something that somebody who hasn't been formally trained in that can understand, right? And that's my goal here. Like, I'm really excited about this aspect of it. You know, again, I can go do tons of really fancy analysis on the data we're generating off the, you know, from the skis. And, but, you know, unless I can explain it to an average person that hasn't uh, you know, doesn't have an engineering degree, like I've totally failed, right? Like we're not doing, you know, we're not servicing the community at all that way. And another interesting point is that, you know, ski design is such a different animal than like an engineering design. Like when I design a part for an engine or something like that, it's got a very specific purpose and it functions under a very specific set of conditions. And, you know, you, so you go design the, the, the pants off that product, right? But for skis, you know, it needs to be, you know, there isn't, you know, we're not designing skis for one-off kind of things like 205-pound, six-foot-one downhill racers on this kind of course, right? You know, we need, you know, people want to know like how accessible that ski is to like a general. But we have a framework to do this in engineering. We talk about this. And I actually teach this class at the graduate level. It's called Robust Control. And so we're not you know, kind of honing in and designing very specific things. We want to design stuff uh, that's applicable to like a large family of of systems, right? So we actually have math to do this. And again, I didn't get into it today, but that's how we're going to start to transition this to like the general audience. You know, we're going to go do the analysis and we're going to understand why um, a ski is a little more poppy on the back end or, um, what is the phrase that you guys like to use? Uh, slarve, right? Like, I, 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 feel, I, I, <laughs> I feel like I feel like you're firing shots. I feel like you're you don't like the word slarve. No, it's no, a I very just, good I, term. I just want to put some math to that. Okay. <laughs> so um, no, but you know, I, I want to be able to first of all, I, I want to understand it deeply, and then you know. You, to explain something simply, you have to understand it deeply. So we're going to go do the math. We're, we're going to dive in and we're going to do all the analysis. You know, We're going to build the algorithms that give us the data we need. But then at the end of the day, we want to be able to present it um, in simple, digestible means, charts, plots of things, right? So that you understand why this like class of skis is a little bit different than this class, right? We're not trying to single out any particular type or manufacture or anything. We're saying, you know, hey, if this is your style and this is what you enjoy in the mountain, these are the classes of skis that you'll like, and this is why you'll like them, right? Then maybe within that group, you can probably do a little more quantitative stuff to, you know, maybe like me, I'm a really interesting uh you know, case study and and what kind of skis I like, right? So I absolutely love bumps. It's my favorite thing in the world to ski. And then powder is a very close second, right? But to have a ski that on the same day is good in bumps and powder is really hard to find, right? And so, you know, that's the kind of, if, you know, if I'm the, the sort of, you know, different kind of person and different kind of skier, I want to be able to go to blister and find a ski that suits that particular style, right? Yeah. We've been talking a bit I guess kind of macro about some bigger, like here's the grand stuff we're kind of working on and why. Talk a bit more about like what you've actually been doing just over the last couple of weeks. Let's go micro and this part has looked real fun. Yeah, no, that sounds good. So, you know, the quantitative stuff 
I mean, you can just throw some sensors on skis and go take a look at that data. And you can discern a lot from that. Um, but if you want to make general arguments, you've got to do that with every ski and every condition and with every style and weight of rider, right? Like we don't have the resources to go do that across the, the, the set of manufacturers every year, right? So I'm really interested, in, and that's where we want to bring in the modeling piece. Okay, so, um, you know, we're building some rigs uh, down at Western right now um, to be able to measure like bending and torsional stiffnesses. Very fundamental part, like this is one of the major design sort of knobs for the, the ski manufacturers, kind of tweaking what those stiffness profiles look like. So we're building up sort of the basic kind of parameters and properties of the ski. Um, so that's enough to kind of make some comparisons, but it doesn't give you the whole picture. And so what we want to do also is develop load cases for powder, for icy groomers, you know, for choppy crud. You know, we want to understand kind of what loads are being applied to the skis in these situations. And if we understand those, you know, then that's where the modeling, I think, becomes useful. Because then we can pump the loads through the models, and then that will tell us, you know, for in the frequency domain and different things, that'll tell us what the differences in the skis are. And these will be very observable in plots, right? And so that's kind of where we're going. And so the in-field measurement systems we've developed and deployed at the end of the season here are, you know, IMUs, so accelerometers and gyros, you know, we distribute all across the ski. Um, and then we, you know, have a, a little microprocessor that collects all that stuff. Um, but from that data, plus, say, the bending and torsional stiffnesses of the characteristics of the ski, we combine all that together and we can back out what the loads are, right? So if you actually write down the partial differential equations that describe all the dynamic motions of the ski, the one thing you don't have um, are the loads that are being applied, right? So we can measure the kinematics, we can measure the stiffnesses and the properties. The one thing we don't have are the, the loads. And so that's what we're working on right now. That's a hard problem, actually. That's not an easily solvable problem. Uh, people have looked at that uh, you know, because it's a continuum, it's a it's a very difficult system to be able to, to back out the loads for. And the reason is, is because it's a it's an inverse problem that's ill-posed. So what that means is you basically have uh, more variables than equations, okay? So you have infinite solutions. So how do you solve that? Um, you need to apply some constraints somewhere. And so that's, um, you know, where we're doing some work right now is trying to understand how we can solve that. But again, once we have a set of loads, uh, that we can apply to like a general ski model, that's when we can make some some quantitative comparisons, right? And that's why we're going to be able to tell you that, you know, this class of ski is going to be a much better fit for you if this is the style and type of skiing that you like to do, right? So, so again, a, a little bit deep here, but I think it's worth just kind of describing what we're doing. And so that's, um, these are uh, in-field deployable sensor suites that we can put on skis. We can also put on mountain bikes. Uh, we can do all sorts of stuff with these guys, right? Now we're going to combine that with the motion capture stuff as well. Um, so this is stuff we can do in lab or potentially outdoors too, right? And so again, we have a, a couple hammers and a couple approaches to hit the problem with. But I'm really excited to, to dig into deep and to, to come up with some really intuitive and novel solutions for how to solve and, and uh, sort of do all these calculations. When you're talking about loads, just to clarify, are you then describing maybe a couple variables here? One might be a 250-pound skier versus a 150-pound skier, but then another thing, and we always bring out our reviewer Drew Kelly for this, 
Drew is closer to the 150 pound skier, but somehow generates forces like he weighs 600 pounds. And it's still, (laughs) I still don't quite understand it. But like, walk through when you're talking about load cases and why that's so important. I presume one of those is maybe the more obvious, like 150 pound person versus 250 pound. But then what about like, we don't all generate forces like a Drew Kelly. Absolutely. Yeah. Perfect. So there's three basically classes of loads, right? There's the weight of the person, which, you know, has a a large effect on how the ski is going to bend and so forth. There's the loads, the snow, and the conditions are applying to the ski, right? The friction and and the, the deformation from that. And then there's the third one, which you just mentioned, which is how the user is using the ski. It's the input to the ski, right? And that's why we've got an IME right underneath the boot. So we can understand the angular velocities that are being imparted uh, at that position on the ski, right? So understanding and, and sort of pulling apart those three different parts is, is important, right? So the, the weight of the person is very easily, to, you know, we can change that and vary that pretty easily. Um, you know, we vary the loads that are uh, imposed on the ski from the snow by skiing in different conditions, right? But then now we have to get different riders to, to kind of flesh out the third one there, right? Like, again, yeah, I think a lot of your skiers, like Luke as well, like he can bend skis like nobody else, right? Like you said. So, I mean, I want to understand what he's doing to the ski to, to be able to get it to bend like that. And so we'll be able to have that data, Um so, because we have the distributed sensor, so we can see what his foot's doing compared to what the rest of the ski's doing. It also seems that a whole nother interesting thing that we might be able to get out of this is lots of skiers are never really hitting higher edge angles. And some are hitting high edge angles a lot. And that ought to bring a new level of specificity to our reviews when somebody is calling a ski really stable or not that stable, what is happening? Like, you know, I think one ski that's running more bases flat might feel pretty squirrely and unstable. But if you actually have that ski on edge, it just strikes me that its construction qualities might mean that, yeah, like there's quite a lot of stability there. And there's going to be just a lot of, I think, differentiation depending just on like, and so when we can start baking that in, and again, if you're a Drew Kelly and you're like, my hips on the ground, every turn I make on a groomer, or you're the opposite of that, I think we're going to be able to start bringing in more of a specificity. And if we're maybe criticizing a product or saying like, this ski doesn't feel that stable or it feels like it's kind of falling apart at speed. It's like, well, what kind of angles are we talking about here? And so- Yeah, no, it's a great question, Jonathan. It's it's also a very intuitive observation. So as you saw from the data today, we can get the orientation of the boot um, and the ski as well. So we know how, how well you're engaging the edge when you're doing that. And so bringing that aspect into the reviews is super important, right? So just understanding kind of, you know, how the user is, you know, trying to engage the snow with the ski, right? And then you said the angle is a really good uh, example of that. So, and you, you saw today, like yeah. we were able to just generate data and just like time sync it with the GoPro video I had on my boot, yeah. right? And you, it's beautiful, right? Like it's very clean and you can really see 
you know, you know how that or I was skiing that day, right? So, but I agree, bringing out some of these more quantitative aspects of how the ski is engaging and its its dynamics and its kinematics and the turns will absolutely help you kind of pull apart the, you know, maybe the the subtleties of those reviews. Well, hey, I think we're gonna leave it at that for now. We're both actually supposed to go <laughs> meet the Blister Labs team in town for a dinner. And I might not be able to do that. I was in Iceland and that was amazing, <laughs> but I have a playing a lot of catch up right now. But uh, I shouldn't make you too late for that dinner. Really cool to sit down with you today and again to see you this earlier this morning. And folks, it's just starting to ramp up around here. And so we will sometime soon be sharing more and then more and more. Um, you know, we're really just getting things going here. But uh, I hope that this conversation has you intrigued and curious, maybe even a little excited about what Sean and his crew have been working on here. As I keep saying, I can't, I can't wait for the fights I can't, I can't, you know, some of the stuff that you're capturing uh, from a data point of view, if we're then, you know, finding pretty different things, maybe that'll never happen. I don't know, but it's sure going to be fun to kind of find out and then process that stuff together and, and communicate what we find kind of to the whole, you know, global outdoor world. So absolutely. And uh, I want to thank you all for listening. Um, this has been fun sitting down, Jonathan. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I'm so excited about this and I'm so excited about where this is going. Uh, you know, you got a really good taste of everything this morning and uh, like, it's just, it's just going to take off from here. So, um, you know, I expect many more gear 30 podcasts and I'd love to be able to maybe even pump out some movies and some data products yeah. before even the start of next season. Yep. So you guys can kind of see how we're thinking about this and, and, how we're approaching it but um yeah no just wonderful to be here in crested butte with jonathan at blister and uh <laughs> yeah looking forward to everything that's going to come in the next couple months awesome and we'll see you again friday absolutely right? with the whole Definitely. with the team so yep. looking absolutely. forward to that too so yeah, great hey man appreciate it yeah, and you too, jonathan. uh yeah i'll uh I'll talk to you real soon all right man. have a good one <laughs> All right, it is time now for our weekly What We're Celebrating segment. This week, that's a pretty easy one. We have assembled many of our senior people at Blister, and our bike editor has come in from Seattle, and our running editor is in Crested Butte from San Francisco, and we have just had two days of really getting to strategize together, hang out together do some sort of ridiculous things together too, of course. But it has just been really, really good to get this exceptional group of people together, brainstorm some ideas, get a clear path of some of the things that we're going to be working on and introducing over these next 12 months. And um, it's just been a real joy to get this crew together. So tonight, we will be raising some glasses of Whistle Pig and just celebrating this time together. But right now, as I told you in the introduction, we all got to get back down to Western for another Blister Labs meeting and roundup. So we are excited to go do that. And that then brings us to the end of this episode of Gear 30. I want to say thanks to Sean for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from the entire Blister team, please take good care of yourselves and everybody else. And we will talk to you again next week.